Hello, this is Mike Lewis, the editor of Where Peter Is. I'm very happy to share this discussion between two very knowledgeable and faithful Catholics, each of whom has a different view of Pope Francis's 2016 post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia. But before we begin, I'd like to make one technical note. Early in the discussion, Pedro's microphone was having serious audio difficulties. So rather than making you have to listen to static and pauses, Pedro decided to re-record his first two statements. I asked Pedro if he's changed anything from the original, and he said he repeated the same words right down to the ums. Sorry that the original had those technical difficulties, but this will be easier for you to listen to. This discussion was initially recorded on Saturday, August 27th, 2022, and we hope you enjoy this dialogue. Thank you. So our, our good afternoon, or wherever you are in the world, it's morning where I am. Uh, we have, uh, I have the great pleasure to introduce a very needed and timely um, disputatio, we could call it, on Amoris Laetitia. Uh, in particular, um, it's, it's infamous or famous, <laughs> as you see, uh, chapter eight. And we have two, uh, two uh, uh, Catholic intellectuals, lovers of the church and lovers of truth. Um, who will swear off and who have been in the arena and have exchanged some, uh, some uh, uh, writings back and forth. Both of them have written books, important books on this matter uh, that deal with this matter. And so I'm going to, without any further ado, I'm going to introduce each of them. Uh, Eduardo Echevria is a professor of philosophy and systematic theology at the Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. He is a PhD in philosophy from the Free University of Amsterdam and a licentiate, a holds a licentiate in sacred theology for the University of St. Thomas, which is the, the better known as the Angelicum in Rome. He is the author uh, of many books and many writings. He's very prolific, uh, but the one that's most important for us is a 2019 book, which has now been revised. I don't know the revision when that was, uh, Eduardo, but recently. 2019. Okay, that's a revision. Okay, Pope Francis, the legacy of, of Vatican II. We also have uh, Pedro uh, Gabriel, is, uh, who is one of the co-founders of Where Peter Is, a uh, virtually indispensable um, uh, website these days, where he is one of the uh, main contributors. He is the author of The Orthodoxy of Amoris Laetitia, so that will tell you his position right away. Uh, currently, uh, he is uh, he's, te he's taking classes in moral theology at the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross. He is also a medical oncologist, so he do, does God's work there as well. He reads for his parish and is a published writer, I'm very intrigued by this, of Catholic novels. I don't know what they are, but they're probably in Portuguese. But uh, it sounds great. So we're going to start. Uh, Pedro is going to give us the way it's going to work is we're going to have two opening statements uh, by each, each of them 10 minutes long. Um, first Pedro, then Eduardo. And then we're going to go, this is the format, we're going to go through the five dubia. 
uh, and get responses uh, of five minutes each. And then we'll close with uh, with some uh, some closing statements. All right. So, uh, Pedro. Hello. Hello. Uh, good morning or good afternoon, according to where you are. First of all. I would like to thank Eduardo for accepting to participate in this discussion and also to Jim for accepting to moderate. Now, my position is precisely that Amoris Laetitia is an orthodox magisterial document since it's based on sound traditional doctrinal principles in continuity with Francis' predecessors. It's true that Amoris allows a new sacramental practice. It allows divorced and remarried couples to receive the sacraments of reconciliation and Eucharist in circumstances that were not allowed before, namely in John Paul II's Familiaris Consortio. But the Church can have different disciplines or practices across time and space. Even the Catholic Encyclopedia, published at the height of the fight against modernism, admits as such on its entry on ecclesiastical discipline. Therefore, it's not sufficient to say that the sacramental practice of Amoris contradicts the sacramental practice that came before it. To say that Amoris is heterodox, one must prove that this sacramental practice contradicts doctrine. And I believe this is not the case. Amoris says that divorced and remarried people can receive communion even if they are still engaging intercourse, something that was not allowed previously, provided that the person involved has mitigating factors that diminish subjective culpability to such a degree that this person is not in mortal sin. Now, to ground this practice, Amoris 301 brings up the Church's solid body of reflection concerning mitigating factors. To prevent the notion that the demands of the Gospel are in any way being compromised. In the very next paragraph, Francis extensively quotes the catechism promulgated by John Paul II himself to explain these mitigating factors. Later on, Francis would elevate as authentic magisterium the criteria applied by the bishops of Buenos Aires. These guidelines say that Amoris Laetitia opens the possibility of access to the sacraments of reconciliation and the Eucharist. If it is recognized that in a specific case there are limitations that mitigate liability and guilt. Francis then goes on to say there are no other interpretations. This is based on traditional sound doctrine. For a sin to be a mortal sin, three conditions must necessarily be present. Grave matter, full knowledge, and full consent. If any of these is not present, then the sin is venial, not mortal. Mitigating factors limit knowledge and consent, 
but they don't interfere with the grave matter of sin. The sin still has grave matter, but the mitigating circumstances hinder full knowledge and full consent, so that the person did not sin mortally and can receive communion. This is, in fact, common practice for most other sins. As Rocco Buttiglioni, a disciple of John Paul II, says, Before, the divorced and remarried were sinners of a particular kind, almost excommunicated. Now, they have become ordinary sinners. So, those who affirm that Amoris is heterodox claim that it teaches that objective sin is no longer present in every circumstance. But I believe this is misreading of the document. One thing is the objectively evil nature of sin, and especially of intrinsically evil sin acts like adultery. Another thing is the subjective culpability of the sinner. The subjective culpability does not change the objective, the object. In fact, if we are talking about culpability, we are admitting that there is a sin. There can be no sin in something in which there is no culpability. The fact that sinner is a more or less culpable does not change the object of the sin. It remains wrong. Therefore, we are talking about different planes which do not intersect. If Amoris Laetitia deals with subjective culpability, then it doesn't justify intrinsically evil acts. If it doesn't justify intrinsically evil acts, then the criticisms are not applicable and Amoris Laetitia is orthodox. And that's my opening statement. Eduardo? Yeah. Um, Jim, Jim began by saying that uh, the title of uh, Pedro's book, The Orthodoxy of uh, Morisotitia, states his position, which he just stated. Um, my own position is uh, also well stated in the fourth chapter of my Pope Francis book on chapter eight of Morisotitia, the, the controverted nature of Amoris Laetitia and, and the conflict of interpretations regarding it. Um, I want to focus on three, three, uh, three criteria that uh, Pope Francis repeatedly has stated have to be implemented in order to understand uh, Amoris Laetitia and in particular chapter eight. The first criteria um, is, is, is about seeing the unity, the unity of thought, I would say, not just that you have to read the entire book, but that there's a unity of thought there in the, as it were, the pastoral logic and the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the moral reasoning that informs that pastoral logic. So, so, the, so uh, that's the first thing, the unity of thought, I would say. And part of part of what I part of what I think here is that um, uh, chapter eight does not give you a coherent and systematic presentation of the of the pastoral logic and the corresponding uh, uh, you know uh, ethical reasoning the logic of ethical reasoning there you it's it, it, you have to 
uh, draw that out and draw together these various aspects, one of which I agree with Pedro, one of which, of course, is that, uh, you know, the whole, the whole notion of mitigating circumstances and, and what follows from that for imputing guilt uh, and holding a person accountable. But in, in, as I will try to argue, in many instances, of course, when you put together all these elements, only one of which is the mitigating circumstances, uh, it seems to me, uh, I will argue, I've argued in chapter four of my book, uh, whether that was the intent of the Pope, I'm not, I'm not going to discuss that here. Uh, it seems to me that the, uh, the chapter eight, uh, at the very least, we can say is problematic. Uh, so the three, the three criteria that the Pope stipulates, one has to do with the unity of thought. The second has to do with the continuity. Uh, Pedro has argued that that uh, the you know the pastoral logic there is continuous with the tradition, uh, and and the third criteria is uh, uh, is the question whether whether the ethic uh, the, the 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 moral reasoning there that informs the pastoral logic whether it's Thomistic. Let me let me then begin by uh, saying something. Uh, uh, so, uh, so with respect to the unity of thought there and, and the, 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 the broad overarching framework of, uh, of, of Francis's pastoral strategy. Uh, his pastoral strategy, I think, is expressed in, in uh, Amoris Letizia, paragraph 78. I'm not going to read all those things because that just takes time away. But if you look at paragraphs 76 to 79 and paragraphs 20, 292 and 293. Um, the core of his pastoral strategy is expressed in paragraph 78. He says, the light of Christ enlightens every person. Um, seeing things with the eyes of Christ inspires the church's pastoral care for the faithful who are living together, who are living together, or are only married civilly, or are divorced and remarried civilly. Following this divine pedagogy, he says, the church turns with love to those who participate in her life in an imperfect manner. Now, that's, to me, that's a, that's a problematic statement because it suggests that, it suggests that even, even if you're able to find uh, moments, uh, constructive elements, good elements in a relationship uh, of people who are cohabiting, uh, etc. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing that to, to say that the relationship, qua relationship, somehow participates in an imperfect manner, um, in an imperfect form or, or uh, partial and analogous, and hence is somehow an incomplete realization of marriage. It seems to me that that's fundamentally mistaken. That's wrong. Uh, because uh, it's it, what happens is, is that then you 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 stop speaking of that relationship qua relationship as a sinful relationship. Uh, Francis uh, theologically justified the good or constructive elements in these situations, uh, not just uh, the divorce and civilly remarried, but it could be, uh, you know, cohabiting uh, heterosexual couples, cohabiting homosexual couples, etc. Um, by employing the concept of the semina verbi or seeds of the word in order to find goodness or positive elements in these relationships, suggesting that these relationships, qua relationships 
are, as I said, imperfect forms, or as he actually says, partial and analogous, and hence incomplete realizations of conjugal marriage, ordered to the good of an exclusive and permanent relationship. However, this approach, it seems to me, uh, and the one in this passage where the light of Christ is central cannot do justice to the teaching of the catechism, for instance, because it does not take seriously the reality of sin and man's resistance to the light of Christ in those relationships, qua relationships. Francis ignores that the human reception of that light is open to resistance and hence to distortion, misinterpretation, and rejection. John 1.9 uh, describes light in its fullness and universality, but not every individual is in fact enlightened by the light. Therefore, the word does not illuminate all human beings because they resist the light. Consider John 1, 5, 10, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Both of these verses speak of the negative reaction of the world to the coming of the light. Where is this resistance to the light in Francis's pedagogy? For instance, uh, in an address of the Pope to participants in the course on the marriage process, he says, at the same time, reach out in the gospel by way, by way of meeting and welcoming young people who prefer to live together without being married. On the spiritual and moral level, they are among the poor and the little ones. Never, let's, we won't get into the exegesis of that, towards whom the church, following in the footsteps of her master and Lord, seeks to be a mother who does not abandon but draws near and takes care of them. This approach runs the serious risk, I would say, of separating the church's mother from the church's teacher, of separating the pastoral from the doctrinal. Where is the illuminating truth expressed in the moral norm, prohibiting fornication in the Catechism, paragraph 2353? and all its consequences that offend the dignity of marriage, family, and weakening the sense of fidelity, as we read in paragraphs 2390. Why don't we hear the sexual act must take place exclusively within marriage? Outside of marriage, is always, it, it always constitutes a grave sin and excludes one from sacramental communion. So it seems to me, regardless of Francis's good intentions, it seems to me his pedagogy, his uh, the pastoral logic that informs this doesn't really uh, take seriously the reality of uh, <laughs> the reality of sin. That, um, that, was your, that was your alarm. You keep going a little bit. Okay, so the the, the second thing I want to say, and I'll probably we'll come back to this when we talk about uh, the dubia. It seems to me that Francis tries to provide a justification. Uh, a person and situation-specific situation justification for uh, engaging in, uh, even under those mitigating circumstances, engaging in um, sexual activity in, in, uh, in a divorce and civilly remarried uh, relationship. And uh, um, it's not going to be enough. And we'll see that as we go on here. It's not going to be enough. It doesn't doesn't justify, you can't justify this purely in terms of mitigating circumstances. I think the Pope accepts uh, uh, the lesser of two evils calculus um, in trying to provide a justification. He also um, tries to provide a justification by um, carving out an exception to 
the up to the to the to the moral law, uh, uh, hence confusing in my view. Uh, 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 negative moral precepts, which are moral absolutes, which are always and everywhere valid, with positive moral precepts, which have presumptive validity, uh, uh, but are indeterminate. Thomas himself, Aquinas himself, admits that they have that positive moral precepts. There's a certain indeterminacy to them. Uh, the more you describe the 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 situation, the particular acts, and so on, uh, they're going to be they're going to be inapplicable. The Pope, it seems to me, in paragraph 304, uh, confuses uh, those two, those two uh, precepts. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, uh, when, I, when I say that he tries to justify uh, a, in a person and situation-specific way uh, 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 an individual, individuals engaging in sexual activity, um, not only does it have to do with the this lesser of two evil calculus, but also uh, I think the Pope, despite his disclaimers, he really accepts the gradualism. His position leads to the acceptance, because I know he says he doesn't, but his position really leads to the acceptance of the, the gradualism of the law. And just to, to define what that is, there's the distinction between the law of gradualness and the gradualness of the law. This is from paragraph 34 of uh, John Paul II's Familiaris Consortio. Everybody accepts the law of gradualness. Everybody. I don't know of anybody that thinks that there's no moral development and so on. It's the gradualism of the law, which means that there are different degrees or forms of precepts, John Paul says, in God's law for different individuals and situations. So, so this, this uh, gradualism of the law provides, you know, a, a joint connected with, um, you know, trying to carve out an exception for the moral law because he confuses ab moral absolutes, negative moral precepts, and positive moral precepts, accepts uh, an ethic, uh, the lesser of two evil e evils, uh, calculus, and then, of course, last but not least, which is at the crux of this, the infamous paragraph 303. Uh, well, hold on. I'm going to I'm going to stop okay. there. Can, can I? Uh, I'm going to call an audible. Can I? Can I just make? Yeah. The, uh, can you hear me? Because I think my sound was not functioning. I think properly. that it, it, it's better now. It's it's much better. Pay, okay. Pay Okay. I'm gonna since I let Eduardo go a little, on a little longer, then you're relatively short. But can, can I see if I can focus Eduardo's statements and see if this is acceptable to him? That the uh, Amoris Laetitia doesn't take very doesn't take seriously enough the sinful nature of the divorced and remarried relationship. I think as, that's part of it. As as in, in the overall pedagogy, he doesn't take seriously. Uh, in, and it's not just with respect to the divorce and civil merit. I gave the example of his talking about, uh, you know, cohabiting couples. Okay, okay. Et cetera. Right. But that's that's but that's only the first point. The second point had to do with, you know, justifying uh, uh, justifying uh, individuals engaging in sexual sexual activity uh, in a marital in a in a relationship that's not a uh, that the church doesn't consider to be. Uh, a valid, uh, a valid marriage. Since these people were, are, are, you know, they're divorced and not that there's no annulment and so on and so on. 
So it seems to me, just to sum it up this this point, it seems to me that uh, the the whole notion of mitigating circumstance, which of which of course I think is is uh, is certainly a valid notion. It's in you know the, the, I don't have any problem with that. I have a problem with the way it's used. And uh, okay, uh, but, but I think also you have to consider the, eth the, the the lesser of two evils calculus. You have to consider his attempt to carve out an exception for the moral law. Uh, even though that moral law has presumptive validity, I think the Pope confuses uh, positive moral precepts, which Aquinas thought were moral absolutes, which are exceptionless moral norms. So committing adultery, having sex with someone who isn't your spouse is a moral absolute. It's, it's, it's exceptionless. The Pope, if you read paragraph 304, is, is confusing negative precepts with positive moral precepts, positive moral precepts having presumptive validity. They're pr they have a prima facie uh, obligation. You have a prima facie, but of course, Aquinas says there are going to be exceptions to it. Uh, but there are no exceptions to a moral absolute. Right, to the negative. And then, okay. of course, as I said, the crux of it is, uh, you know, how one reads paragraph 303 uh, in, in Amoris Petitia. Okay, so, uh, Pedro, before we go to the dubia, I'm going to give you a chance uh, to... to, to I, I think a lot of Eduardo's argument is that he's not taking seriously enough the, the sinfulness, and everything sort of follows from that. But uh, I don't know. You can respond any way you want. But that does seem to me to be the crux of Eduardo's uh, point. Yes, I understood the crux. Um, I will I will provide my replies throughout uh, the debate. Uh, if you um, if you want to pass on to the to the okay. Dubia, I'm okay. Here. Let's do that then. Let's do that. That's fine with me. Um, all right. So we're going to go through the Dubia. For those who don't know, uh, these Dubias it's, it's just Latin word for doubts. Is it? Sort of a typical way the magisterium used to, it doesn't really so much anymore, um, respond to certain questions. People would ask the Holy Office or the, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, uh, yes or no, you know, questions that could be answered in the affirmative or the negative. Anyone knows Denzinger, it's filled with this kinds of stuff, especially in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. Um, uh, Okay, so so these these dubia they they were they were published or I came it came to light in 2016, so you know relatively soon after the um, uh, the uh, Morris Letizia, uh, but have not received a response. And so uh, although uh, uh, they they do seem to 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 concretize some of the some of the some of the concerns here. So let me read the first one. It is asked. Whether following the affirmations of Amoris Letizia, uh, numbers 300 to 305, it has now become possible to grant absolution in the sacrament of penance and thus to admit to Holy Communion a person who, while bound by a valid marital bond, lives together with a different person in a marital way, more uxoria, uh, without fulfilling the conditions provided by Familiaris Consortio and subsequently affirmed by Reconciliatio and, and Penitentia and Sacramento Caritas, Caritatis. Can the expression in certain cases found in note 351 of 305 of the exhortation Amoris Letizia be applied to divorced persons who are in a new union and who continue to live in a marital way? I think we have Eduardo going first. Okay. 
So to understand uh, um, to understand this uh, this first uh, doubt expressed by the cardinals, um, and why is it that they why is it that they raise this question? Is again because, uh, in my view, because of the, uh, the 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 lesser of two evils calculus, uh, the lesser of two evils calculus. What does that What does that mean? Because we need to understand this. It's not just mitigating circumstances. We need to understand this in order to understand why then. Uh, um, uh, uh, Francis seems to be, or uh, his his supporters on this matter seem to be suggesting that a person who is even uh, ha having uh, uh, sex in a civilly uh, in a divorce and civilly remarried uh, situation that they that they should be able to receive absolution. And so, of course, the question is whether or not uh, e you know. Does does is, does absolution? Can they receive absolution even if there is uh, a lessening of, of guilt or or even an eradication such that you're not imputing guilt to that person, you're not holding that person accountable? And it seems to me that the way that Francis reaches that, and 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 all the others that have written, even the example that uh, that uh, Pedro gives at the end of his book. It seems to me works with uh, implicitly works with an ethic, a lesser of two evils calculus. What does that mean? If you're working with an with a, a lesser of two evil calculus, that means that the question is no longer a matter of um, mitigating circumstances, circumstances that limit uh, a person's uh, voluntary or subjective capacity to decide. Um, no, it becomes a situation that limits the objective choice and that forces the person to choose between two moral evils, the evil that seemed to him to be the lesser. So what would that be in this instance? Well, we don't have to look very far. Francis himself, if you, if, it seems to me, if one reads this carefully, he is uh, he's saying that in such situations, where for serious reasons, such as the children's upbringing, a man and a woman cannot satisfy the obligation to separate. Uh, many people knowing and accepting the possibility of living as brothers and sisters, which the church offers them, point out that if certain expressions of intimacy were lacking or are lacking, it often happens that faithfulness is endangered and the good of the children suffer. So this is a concrete situation in which a couple, knowing full well the rule prohibiting fornication and adultery, cannot, as Francis says, act differently and decide otherwise without further sin. So the greater evil is going to be to commit further sins. Uh, the lesser evil, of course, uh, it, it would seem, given the mitigating circumstance, it would seem that the, the couple can have sex uh, because the, the implications of not having sex are going to be such that it may lead to uh, the ruin of the marriage and hence the uh, implications for the life of the children and so on and so on. So uh, the lesser of two evils calculus here makes the choice, according to this view, uh, the more morally permissible choice 
is made under a two, le lesser of two evils calculus. And so you come to the conclusion that the le lesser of two evils is going to be having sex. Uh, and it's going to be considered, uh, as, as some have argued, it's going to be considered a, a, a venial sin, not a mortal sin, because of the mitigating circumstances as such. So um, let me, uh, since I'm probably running out of time, yeah, let one me, minute. One minute. Okay, let me conclude there with a quote from, uh, uh, from Cardinal Muller, who in his book, um, his book, um, The Power of Truth, The Challenges to Catholic Doctrine and Morals Today, uh, I actually wrote a review of this, um, but he says at one point, many are suggesting today that the sacramental absolution can be given to penitents who, on account of mitigating circumstances, can be said to be free of subjective culpability before God, despite the fact that they continue living in an objective state of grave sin. Uh, what is more controversial, he says, is its application to the sacramental order. Is it possible to use the probable absence of subjective culpability as a criterion for granting absolution? Would this not mean turning the sacraments into subjective realities, which is contrary to their very nature as effective, visible, and thus objective signs of grace? Now, just in conclusion, uh, the other thing is, of course, of course, a firm purpose of amendment, the resolution not to sin any longer. Uh, Pedro does have a section in his book where he discusses applying mitigating circumstances to past sins and applying them to futures, applying the same circumstances to future sins. Um, it seems to me that this doesn't, uh, this is, completely unacceptable to future sins. Even if even if it's legitimate to apply it to past sins, future sins, his the, the case that he makes there, it seems to me, is uh is weak and and uh, and and at the end of the day unsupportable. It doesn't take seriously uh the catechism's whole discussion of venial sins in, in paragraph 1853 and the impact that venial sin has. Such that, such that uh it says it tends to, uh, thus, sin creates a proclivity to sin. It engenders vice by repetition of the same acts. This results in perverse inclinations which cloud conscience and corrupt the concrete judgment of good and evil. All right. Uh, okay. We got we to gotta keep to five minutes. So, okay. Uh, all right, Pedro. Okay. 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 Lots to unpack here. I'll probably unpack more uh, across the. The, across the, the very dubia. So, uh, starting with the actual dubium one, I believe that the answer is yes. Some remarried people live in Morsorio, as you know, with uh, the marital intercourse, can receive communion without fulfilling the conditions of familiaris consortio and reconciliation. Sound is messed up again, somehow. Uh, how about now? Can better, you hear me? Yeah. yeah. It's okay. better now. I don't know what it is, but you're, oh, oh, when you... Okay. So, uh, I believe that the answer to that dubium is yes. Some remarried people can receive communion without fulfilling those conditions. 
But notice that by simply answering yes, this gives a false impression. It gives the impression that, uh, that suddenly the, uh, the communion can be granted to anyone. That answering yes is misleading because it's reductive. And see now uh, how the dubia requiring a yes or no answer without theological explanation, as the cardinals intended, isn't a good way to clarify Amoris. We need more nuance and explanation. In some cases, there can be access to communion, but there needs to be a discernment based on their subjective culpability. And here uh, is where I think that uh, Eduardo, what, when Eduardo asked where is resistance to light in Francis' pedagogy, where is um, focusing on the objective norms, Notice that for the discernment that would open the door to the Eucharist, for this discernment to happen, Amoris Letitia, paragraph 300 says, the following conditions must necessarily be present. Humility, discretion, and love for the church and their teaching. In a sincere search for God's will, and a desire to make a more perfect response to it. These are not people who are looking for justifications. These are people who already know the church's teaching and will to make a more perfect response to it. Continue, uh, the, uh, the paragraph continues. These attitudes are essential for avoiding the grave danger of misunderstandings such as the notion that any priest can quickly grant exceptions. So the, the, the idea that there are exceptions is a grave misunderstanding. When a responsible and tactful person who does not presume to put his or her own desires ahead of the common good of the church meets with a pastor capable of acknowledging the seriousness of the matter before him, there can be no risks that a specific discernment may lead people to think that the church maintains a double standard. Now, the Buenos Aires guidelines, which on the opening statement I said are the only proper interpretation of Amor's Letizia, according to Pope Francis, these Buenos Aires guidelines further clarify. We must avoid understanding this possibility as an unrestricted access to the sacraments, or as if any situation justified it. Now, regarding... Um, uh, the Regarding the Familiaris Consortio, um, I just want to say very quickly, because the first Dubian mentions um, Familiaris Consortio, that the paragraph 84 says, the Church reaffirms her practice which is based upon sacred scripture of not admitting to Eucharistic communion, divorce and remarriages who have remarried. So it's a practice. So it can be replaced by another practice. And yes, it's based upon sacred scripture as is proper, but that doesn't mean that other practices are also not based on sound doctrine. And I believe that Amoris Letizia is one of those. Now, just to finalize my first, uh, intervention regarding the dubia, I would like to um, 
point out that there's a certain barrier of communication between Pope Francis and those who support Amoris Laetitia and between those who are more critical of Amoris Laetitia. Uh, in that, the, uh, uh, it seems like we are seeing these concrete situations in different ways. Eduardo and those who are more critical of Amoris Laetitia view these situations, in my opinion, more like a, a picture. So their focus is on what's happening now. What's happening now is the objective situation of sin. But Francis views this not as a picture, but more like in a movie. So it is a path and a journey away from the objective situation of sin. So as Rocco Buttiglioni uh, again summarizes, for Francis, what matters most is in what direction is the sinner moving? So let's take a person who is very experienced in the faith, who has exercised himself in virtue, who is more advanced on the path to perfection. And this person, for some reason, takes a step backwards away from the Father. This is worse than a sinner who takes a step forward towards the Father. Even if the sinner is, after this step, in, in, in terms of absolute distance, still less perfect than the other person. The direction of a movement counts more than the absolute distance. And that's what Francis means in Evangelium Gaudium, which is programmatic of his pontificate, when he says his principle, time, the movement, is greater than space, which is the distance. Francis is a pope of processes. For him, it doesn't matter whether this process of conversion starts with a small step or a big step. What matters is that it starts. And as soon as the process is set in motion, the church can take over with help of the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And the grace that comes from the sacraments will help the sinner in that process. So it's not about a moral calculus of a lesser evil. Moral calculus already seems to imply that the person is looking for justifications. Again, as I said, it's not that. The moral calculus has to do only with the state of the soul so that the person can know if that person is immortal and uh, venial and venial sin, and if that person can receive communion and receive grace from that Eucharist. It's not about mentioning whether they have an exception or whether they have a justification. Those cases that Eduardo mentions of people may see the fidelity, uh, that fidelity uh, be endangered, especially if there are children present, this calculus has to do only with their subjective culpability. And that's for me the point. We're not talking about the objective, the objective, the objective nature of sin. We are talk we're not trying to justify it. We are talking about people who are already who already have a love of church in their teaching. But they need our pastoral help. That's for me what's at this moment important. Okay. And Pedro, your um your sound is still going in and out, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know what you can do. Uh, okay. Uh it always seems to work better when you're just talking, but when you're presenting, it goes a little in and out. We can hear it. We can hear it, but it's... Yeah, yeah. You can understand what I'm saying. 
we it's can still erratic, and there's those little moments of silence in between. Yeah. It's not. It's not that your points aren't coming through, but they're. You, you, you know, it's it's. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know what you can do about it. We're just gonna have to okay. soldier on. Yes. I'll try on my end. Okay. Well, okay. see, right now when you're talking, it's fine. But when you start presenting, then it starts getting erratic. I don't know why that is. Okay. Maybe okay. it's the, maybe it's the Holy Spirit doesn't want doesn't want your message to get across. I'm joking, of course. I don't. Okay. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, I'll, I'll mute myself. You can you can continue now. Okay. Well, I okay. think Pedro, you're 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 going to be first. Um, at this is Dubia number two, and I should have said it was done by these cardinals. I should name them just in case people don't know. Uh, Walter uh, Braunmüller, Raymond Burke, uh, Carlo uh, Cafara, and Joachim Meisner were the were the and, and and Cardinal Burke. Did you mention Burke? Yeah, and yeah, Raymond Burke. Yep. Yeah, Raymond Burke. Okay, so the second. Can I, can I just? Uh, can you hear me? Better, better, better. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. That's better. Yeah, okay. Let's see if this is the time. It might have to do with the speed okay, of you can, you can continue. You can continue. Okay, so here, let me read the second dubia. After the post-synodal uh, uh, apostolic exhortation of Morris Letizia, does one still need to regard as valid the teaching of John Paul's encyclical, Veritatis Splendor, and they point to number 79, based on sacred scripture and on the tradition of the church, on the existence on the existence of absolute moral norms that prohibit intrinsically evil acts and that are binding without exception. So the focus here is whether we can continue to maintain, after Morris Letizia, the idea of these absolute moral norms, which, which then lead to intrinsically evil act. So uh, Pedro, you're up first. Okay. Uh, I'll just ask if there is another, please tell me so that I will try to set it on yes, my side. I will. Okay. So regarding Dubium 1, yes, I do believe that we can and must regard Veritatis Splendor as valid. There it starts are, again. Are still. It yeah. started again. It starts right. Static. Static starts coming through. Okay. What about now? Say more. More? Uh, can you hear me now? We can hear you yeah, when you speak like that. It seems fine, but... Okay. So, yes, I believe that Veritatis Splendor, um, we must regard it still as valid. There are still absolute moral norms uh, which are binding without exceptions. There are still intrinsically evil acts which aren't justified in any situation. But again, that has to do with the objective nature of sin. And I believe that Amoris leaves that untouched. Amoris deals again with subjective culpability. And Veritatis Splendor also acknowledges this part of doctrine. Veritatis chapter 61 says, an error of conscience can be the result of an invincible ignorance, an ignorance of which the subject is not aware and which he is unable to overcome by himself. Veritatis number 70 
also reaffirms the importance and permanent validity of the distinction between mortal and venial sins in accordance with the church's tradition. Both in moral theology and in pastoral practice, one is familiar with cases in which an act which is grave by reason of its matter does not constitute a mortal sin because of a lack of full awareness or deliberate consent on the part of the person performing it. Again, so this is a very tight splendor reaffirming the, uh, the, um, the doctrine of mitigating circumstances. Now, I would just like to uh, uh, also bring up something that uh, Eduardo mentioned, uh, which is the concept of analogy. Uh, okay, so. It's good. Um, Very good. Yeah, okay. So regarding this concept of, uh, Eduardo mentioned that uh, Amoris Laetitia considers um, the divorce and remarried couple, some irregular situations, as analogous to marriage and that this would be wrong. So I would like to highlight this, okay? So it's paragraph 292, some forms of union radically contradict the ideal while others realize it in at least a partial and analogous way. Now, analogous way uh, is a, a very theologically charged term. Analogical reasoning is something that dates back to Aquinas. And, uh, for example, Thomas Guarino, who published an excellent and seminal book on the disputed teachings of Vatican II, he mentions how the teachings of the Second Vatican Council are as regards to non-Catholic Christian churches and communities, that these teaching about those non-Catholic churches and, com and communities also uses analogical reasoning. Those non-Catholic churches and communities are secondary analogates of the Catholic Church. And I find that Eduardo was very insightful when he brought up in his last interview with Eric Sammons for Crisis Magazine, the concept of the seeds of the gospel. It says, when we think about non-Christian religions, and we say that there are seeds of the word there, where you can find elements of truth and goodness there. And Eduardo also mentioned that Amor Zatizia also uses the concept of seeds of the word. But this time, instead of using it for the non-Catholic churches and communities, he uses it for irregular situations. There's a whole section that uh, is about that seeds of the word in these regular situations. However, in his interview, Eduardo also clarified now, what the church never says is that those religions in and of themselves are salvific, and he reaffirmed it now, uh, now again. But Eduardo concludes that Amoris preaches that irregular situations seem to be justified, like as if in a uh, for themselves, they are salvific. But that, in my opinion, is not warranted by the document. Those irregular situations are analogous to marriage, the same way other churches are analogous to the Catholic Church, without the former obscuring the latter. We are not saying that other religions are salvific. We are not saying that other religions are like justified. So we shouldn't apply the same, we should apply the same reasoning for marriage and irregular situations because the ring is the same. Also, I would just like to end by clarifying which forms of union are analogous and which are not. Francis' analogical reasoning for the divorce and remarried couples 
and for non-married cohabitating couples. But as regards to homosexual unions, Amoris Letizia, paragraph 251, is very, very clear. There are absolutely no grounds for considering homosexual unions to be in any way or even remotely analogous to God's plan for marriage and family. So analogical reasoning is being applied only to these, the cohabitating couples, non-married couples, and divorce and remarried couples. And after mentioning those irregular situations, Francis goes on to explain the, the doctrine of mitigating circumstances. All the, all the succeeding, all the next paragraphs are about that. Okay, perfect, that's perfect, five, five minutes, <laughs> great. All right, Eduardo. All right, so uh, just for the sake of clarification, yes, I did say that you can find elements, of, according Nostra Etate, you can find elements of truth and sanctification in those non-Christian religions, but the religions, qua religions, are not uh, vehicles of salvation. Huh? In fact, in fact, uh, at the, to take a concrete example, uh, Islam must be false because it denies the incarnation, the atoning work of Christ, uh, and so on. So there's an, there's an incompatible element there. The, those, those central claims are incompatible. Um, now, when we apply the, the notion of the seeds of the word to marriage, again, the same thing, it seems to me, applicable. Even if you can find uh, constructive elements, uh, um, you know, uh, elements that resemble marriage or in some way are an analogous such that you can find similar uh, elements of marriage. The fact is, if you don't talk then about the relationship, qua relationship being a sinful relationship, um, it seems to me that you're then going to think that those elements somehow uh, you're not going to see that those elements and the marriage as a whole or the cohabiting relationship as a whole is going to be a serious obstacle uh, uh, to attaining um, attaining a conjugal marriage. Huh? So um, it's, it seems to me that if you go back and you look at the, at the document from the Synod itself, the Synod itself actually used the whole notion of analogy, seeds of the words with respect to homosexual relations. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why you have the, you know, the bishops, the German bishops arguing for blessings of same-sex unions and so on. Now, uh, I, I don't want to go, I, I want to just take a few moments. Also, again, it seems to me it's not just about mitigating circumstances. Paragraph 304, the Pope is trying to carve out an exception to, uh, uh, remember, I think he confuses uh, negative moral precepts and positive moral precepts. So taking those positive moral precepts to have presumptive validity, he's trying to carve out an exception to that. He says in paragraph 304, it is reductive simply to consider whether or not an individual's actions correspond to a general law or rule, because that is not enough to discern and ensure full fidelity to God in the concrete life of a human being. That's when he tries to incorporate Thomas's discussion about, about positive moral precepts that have presumptive validity, uh, where Thomas says that there are exceptions. He says there are exceptions. There are no exceptions with respect to the moral absolute, but it seems to me the Pope confuses the two kinds of precepts. 
One other thing, and that is, if we go back to paragraph 303, which I said is the sort of the crux of the matter here with respect to justification, it's going to be person and situation specific. I think the Pope's view in, implies the gradualism of the law. Uh, I've already defined what that is, but in paragraph 303, he says, yet conscience can do more than recognize that a given situation does not correspond objectively to the overall demands of the gospel. It can also recognize with sincerity and honesty what for now is the most generous response or the most generous offering, what, you know, the whole business about the Latin making a definitive difference as to how one reads it, to me, uh, is uh, totally unsustainable. Um, what for now is the most generous response which can be given to God and come to see with a certain moral security that, that it is what God himself is asking amid the concrete complexity of one's limits, while yet not fully the objective ideal or the objective standard or the objective exemplar. Uh, uh, I don't think that they, I don't think that the quote unquote, the ideal is unattainable, but I do think that Francis renders uh, the, uh, the, the, the moral law ceases to have a, uh, an obligatory force and it, it assumes an aspiring force. So you aspire. Of course, I agree with uh, with Pedro that there's a dynamic there. There's no question that there's a dynamic. It's not a static picture. Uh, a person is going to be called, uh, you know, to live, to embody more fully the objective demands of the law. But in that specific situation where two people uh, continue to have sex, the divorce and civilly remarried, there, Francis, I think, is trying to justify that. Hence, the ethic of uh, the lesser of two evils calculus. I don't see how you can get out of that. Hence, also, the whole attempt to carve out an exception to the law, uh, which he does in paragraph 304. That's why he also cites paragraph 305. Uh, that's why he also thinks that, uh, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you appeal to the moral law, he thinks, um, you know, to, to those living in irregular situations, you're you're like a, a, a pastor who's throwing stones at people's lives uh, and and or, you know, again, the sitting on the chair of Moses and judging at times with superiority and superficiality, difficult cases and wounded, wounded families. Also, let's not forget, we haven't even gotten into that. The whole uh, Francis diminishes the significance of abstract truth. Um, he says he says quite uh, uh, you know quite uh, uh, the logic of black and white. No mention mention he no mention here of mitigating circumstances. The logic of black and white can lead to casuistic abstraction. Instead, discernment means going beyond the gray areas of life according to God's will, uh, that's what 303 is about, and you look for God's will by following the true doctrine of the gospel and not in the fixity of an abstract doctrine, such that uh, an abstract doctrine, uh, you know, a, a, a universally valid moral precept, a negative moral precepts that's always and everywhere valid. So uh, I know that Pedro thinks that mitigating circumstances uh, are, are sufficient to justify all this, but it seems to me if you look at 
at the Pope's own position where he tries to provide an, a, a justification. He doesn't like the word justification, but it is a justification. On the way to, one hopes, on the way to a more fuller realization of, uh, of the, the objective demands of the law, uh, uh, okay. There is a justification. He gives a, He tries to give a justification for engaging in sex. He tries to find an exception for the moral law because he confuses moral absolutes, negative precepts with positive precepts, All right. okay. etc. Yeah, okay. Just, oh, uh, so just one clarification. Uh, yeah. Can you please uh, refer me what, uh, what is the quote on, about being not, not everything being black and white? Is it? Oh, there are so many. Five, right? Uh, no, well, yeah, let's see, um, I'd have to look. Uh, there are many, many places in, uh, in his, not just in, in, uh, in Amoris Letizia, but no, throughout no, the book, okay. you, you know, he, you look, the Pope, uh, it seems to me, I've okay. written about this, he, he, uh, he minimizes uh, the content of faith, uh, propositions, uh, abstract truth, which are in fact propositions. He rejects absolute moral. He rejects right. absolute truth. Blah blah blah. Okay, so let's move on to the the, the third, and you, we, I'm sure we we're getting down to the, the real issues here. So this is good. All right. So the the, the third dubia, and Eduardo is going to go first. Let me read it here. After Amoris Laetitia, is it still possible to affirm that a person who habitually lives in contradiction to a commandment of God's law, as for instance, the one that prohibits adultery, Matthew 19, three to nine, finds him or herself in an objective situation of grave habitual sin. So Eduardo, you have five minutes. Well, um, I would say that uh, uh, all things considered from the Pope's writings, I would say, yes, he thinks that you can continue to have sex, uh, um, con you know, uh, conjugal sex in a divorce and, re uh, divorce and civilly remarried situation. Um, and again, if we go back to 303, um, it can also recognize, the person can recognize with sincerity and honesty what for now is the most generous response. So what for now is the most generous response, which can be given to God in this situation, uh, is that, is what God himself is asking amid the concrete complexities of one's limits, while yet not fully the objective ideal or the objective norm, or however you want to translate that, it, it's not synonymous with the specific choices that the person is making. So now, of course, it seems to me, even if one uh, wants to consider that a venial sin because of mitigating circumstances, which, as I said, I don't accept that interpretation as a full justification for the Pope's position, because I think he engages in, uh, you know, the lesser of two evils calculus, um, which, which, if I understand Pedro, he doesn't deny that. He just thinks that the Pope is not concerned with justification. He's concerned with whatever goodness. Uh, but I don't see whatever goodness uh, in that relationship is uh, the dynamic that opens the person up to a further realization of uh, the objective norm. But I, it seems to me that this, again, is the idea that you can sin 
in order to bring about a good. You can sin in order to bring about a good. Um, uh, the fact that, the again, I, I, I don't know how else to read paragraph 304, where the Pope is saying that there are exceptions. That's why he's appealing to Thomas. Here he's not appealing to Thomas for mitigating circumstances. The other thing that I think is uh, is problematic about the notion of uh, mitigating circumstances, uh, Pedro always refers to invincible ignorance. But the fact is, there is vincible ignorance. John Paul II, again in that in, in the encyclical, in Veritatis Splendor, is actually citing uh, Gaudium et Spes, uh, where he says, again, this is in paragraph... Uh, this is in paragraph 63. Uh, conscience as the ultimate concrete judgment compromises its dignity when it is culpably erroneous. That is to say, quote, he's quoting from Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes, when man shows little concern for seeking what is true and good, and conscience gradually becomes almost blind from being accustomed to sin. Now, I do not see why uh, all of the people who are in Let's let's say in mitigating circumstances, uh, why why we can or, or ha, why we have the optimism, uh, you know why we have the optimism, and I sense that there's a certain optimism in 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 uh, in uh, Pedro as well uh, to hold individual blameless without considering the reasons why they are unwilling to address the difficulty. Because remember, it's not just mitigating circumstances, not just ignorance. It's that the the Pope rightly says there are people who say, I can't accept, I understand the rule, but I can't accept it, or it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, uh, he, he, he says that. Uh, um, and it seems to me uh, there's no mention made, and Pedro doesn't make mention of it in, in its entire book. I don't, I could be wrong, but I, I don't remember him ever talking about vincible ignorance uh, or even uh, or even uh, pushing back against the people who say they're unable to follow the rule or they don't understand. Someone who said, you know, someone who's told, you know, the church teaches, uh, um, like John Paul II in Love and Responsibility, he crafts a whole argument uh, for why premarital sex is wrong. And a person who says, well, I don't think premarital sex is wrong. Uh, there's no mention made in the Pope's thing about the reasoning that led these people to hold these false beliefs. For example, negligent, uh, uh, negligent reasoning, uh, presuppositions that they're operating with, ideological rationalization, wishful thinking. Yes, you can draw on the church's solid body of reflection concerning mitigating factors and situations, but it seems to me that uh, there's a tendency here to overlook the corresponding body of reflection concerning whether the ignorance is voluntary or not, invincible or vincible, and hence of a result of ethical value blindness, to use a, uh, what's his name, von Hildebrandt's term. Uh, so I, I just think, uh, I, 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 it, it just seems to me it's too easy. It's too easy to, to because and, and it's not even the Pope's position, it seems to me, if you consider everything he says in, in, uh, in chapter 8. Uh, it's right, too easy to, 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 lead, to, to, you know, to, to focus on mitigating circumstances, particularly if you don't distinguish between uh, uh, 
invincible, invincible ignorance, but also the fact that that those circumstances, the people who aren't able to recognize or aren't able to accept the, the rules or whatever, in fact, uh, you have to push back against them. You have to say, well, why? What are your reasons for this? You can't just you can't just let them. Uh, you can't just accept. Oh, okay, no. Okay, all right. So Pedro, five minutes. Okay. Uh, so regarding uh, Dubium three, uh, again, uh, I think that uh, we can we can we can and must continue saying that a person in that situation is in an objective situation of grave habitual sin. This dubium was formulated so that an yes answer would contradict the canon law. But uh, I explain in my book that there might that there is uh, here a disagreement between Pope Francis and the Pontifical Council for legislative texts at the time of John Paul II on what constitutes manifest and what constitutes grave sin. Uh, does grave sin mean a mortal sin or does it mean a sin with grave matter? So I refer people to my book about so that they will explore the canon law issues with more detail because uh, Eduardo brings many other good points that I want to address. First of all, uh, Eduardo mentioned that the seeds of the gospel also uh, were mentioned in the Synod's work document uh, for homosexual unions. I just want to highlight that what matters is what Amoris Letitia says, not the work document. Now, uh, the reason why I asked Eduardo about uh, where he had seen the black, the quote about black and white, I believe that it's paragraph 305, uh, though I might have got lost along the way. If it is, I'm sorry. But uh, Eduardo said, uh, quoted this and say, by thinking that everything is black and white, we sometimes close off the way of grace and of growth and discourage paths of sanctification, etc., etc. And then Eduardo said, there's no subjective culpability, no mitigating factors here. But there is. Subjective culpability is mentioned seven lines above. It's in the same, it's in the same paragraph. So everything that is said here is about subjective culpability. Now, going back to paragraph 304, in which uh, we, uh, we talk about Thomas, uh, I would like to just say that, yes, Francis quotes Aquinas saying that, although there is necessity in the general principles, the more we descend to matters of detail, the more frequently we encounter defects. In matters of action, truth or practical rectitude is not the same for all as to matters of detail, but only as to general principles. Uh, the principle will be found to fail according as we descend further into detail. Okay, and supposedly Amoris quotes Thomas Aquinas on that, and Eduardo thinks he's being misquoted. Okay, but Paragraph 304 goes on to clarify, and this is Pope Francis speaking. It is true that general rules set forth a good which can never be disregarded or neglected. I emphasize, general rules can never be disregarded or neglected. So only then Francis goes on to say that in their formulation, these general rules cannot provide absolutely for all particular situations. So whatever Francis means by this, it must be read in light of the fact that general rules can never be disregarded or neglected. And so from that point onward, 
we may introduce the subjective culpability, the mitigating factors, because that's the, the, the preceding paragraphs, 300 to 303, all, all talk about mitigating factors. So we cannot just simply, Eduardo says that we must read the document as a whole. If we must read the document as a whole, we cannot just forget what the previous paragraph said. So, and now, basing ourselves into the subjective culpability part of the equation, Thomas really mentions full consent. For Aquinas, there is a distinction between human acts and acts of man. Human acts are actions properly called, and we choose to perform them out of our own will. And acts of man are acts that we practice out of external influences outside of our will. And these are passions. They are called passions. And of course, our passions don't cancel our free will. We can and must order both our acts and our passions to reason. But to order our passions to reason, we need habits. And habits are not punctual activities. They are a continuous disposition. They take time to develop. So a person who doesn't have his or her passions ordered towards reason through habits is less culpable than a person who deliberately chose to act through his or her own, or her own will. And also regarding full knowledge, Eduardo mentions that Pope Francis thinks that a person can just say, oh, I, I know this teaching, but I don't accept it. That's not what it says. It says people who may have difficulty understanding. And here Thomas also has an idea that the authority is not the supreme criterion or rule of certitude. For uh, You cannot just say with authority of the church, and this is the rule of certitude. For it to be a rule of certitude, reason must have ascertained this before it is entitled to our assent. Summa Theologiae says, to believe is an act of the intellect inasmuch as the will moves it to assent. And this proceeds from the will and the intellect. So not only does the will need to be ready to obey, but also the intellect needs to be well disposed to follow the command of the will. So hence there needs to be a habit of virtue, not only in the commanding will, but also in the assenting intellect. Okay. Uh, I'm going to talk about more about invisible ignorance, maybe in the next dubia, maybe. Okay. All right. I mean, Matt, can I just jump in? If, if you everything that uh, Pedro just said, I have no problem with. I just don't think that uh, that that informs uh, paragraph three hundred three. Um, and okay. and furthermore, it, the Pope does say uh, that these people, and this is in paragraph two ninety five, are not in a position they claim to understand, appreciate, or fully carry out the objective demands of the law. So it seems to me. What you have to ask there, because uh, I don't think you can uh, assume that these people are um, uh, invincibly ignorant. They're not invincibly ignorant because this has nothing to do with ignorance. This means that they don't accept the moral principles, the moral, the moral rules, etc. So then the question is whether or not, as I said, you know, then the question you have to ask is, well, why don't you? Why don't you accept it? Uh, their their inability to accept it 
may have something to do with uh, false reasoning, ideological rationalization, presuppositions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So mitigating circumstances is not going to help. It doesn't help in this kind of situation. It doesn't help because these people uh, may in fact be accountable for the failure to actually uh, pursue, well, what, what's at stake here? How do I understand this? Uh, and it just seems to me that that's, uh, I, I, I missed that. I missed that in your book. Uh, I miss it also in the, in the Pope's, uh, in, in, paragra in, in, this, in this chapter. Uh, it seems to me one has to push back. Um, when the Pope talks about, you know, like I gave the example of his welcoming, you know, the, those that cohabit, they're not married, etc. Okay, so well, well, let's. I think, I think this will come up at least in the in the next, if not in the other one. So, uh, let me read uh, the dubia dubium four. After the affirmations of Amoris Laetitia, uh, number three hundred two, on quote, this is going to get to what we're arguing about here. Circumstances which mitigate moral responsibility. Does one still need to regard as valid the teaching of St. John Paul II's encyclical Veritatis Splendor number 81 based on sacred scripture and tradition, according to which, quote, circumstances or intentions can never transform an act intrinsically evil by virtue of its object into an act subjectively good or defensible as a choice. And so Pedro begins. So, as I said before, since I believe that subjective culpabilism changed the intrinsically evil nature of sin, so circumstances can't turn an intrinsically evil sin into a subjective good or defective choice. Okay, so that's that's my my argument. Now, I would like to um, address uh, Eduardo's argument about vincible ignorance uh, that. Pope Francis and I don't speak much about vincible ignorance. It's correct because, again, we uh, our point is not about vincible ignorance. Vincible ignorance can be can and should be uh, defeated. That's vincible in Latin says defeated, so it should be defeated. But again, the what Francis and me, what we are talking about is subjective culpability. So we are either talking about invincible ignorance or a lack of full consent. And for me, these are the people who have uh, difficulty to appreciate, that's full knowledge, or fully carry on full consent, the demands of the law. So, and I find this interesting because I wrote this in my book that when I present the teaching of mitigating circumstances, usually my, the reply is, yes, ignorance may diminish subjective culpability, but in that case, the priest must inform the sinner of his sin, thereby dispelling his ignorance. And from that point onward, all of this ceases to apply. And Eduardo didn't say that exactly, but he says, why shouldn't we? Why don't, why don't we push? Yes, we should push, period, we are in agreement. But I want to uh, point out that this seems like an argument, but it's actually a set of two arguments. First, it, it implies that ignorance ceases a mitigating circumstance simply when we inform the sinner that he is sinning. 
And second, we uh, swept full consent under the rug. And from this point onward, only ignorance and full knowledge is being considered from that point on. So I don't think that I talk much about invisible ignorance in my book. I, I mean, I talk, yes. But I also mentioned that Amor's Letizia doesn't talk much about ignorance, vincible or invincible. Francis dedicates half a sentence to the part of full knowledge, but he develops the concept of full consent throughout almost two paragraphs. And usually uh, this full consent part of the equation is ignored in all these debates about Amor's Letizia. But I think it, uh, most, of these, um, most of these irregular situations that apply, to which Amor's Letizia apply, most of them are more about full consent and full knowledge. And I would like to, to bring out that full consent is not merely hindered in cases of rape. The catechism, the parts of the catechism that Francis quotes in Amor's Letizia mention that many external pressures may hamper full consent. But even if we were talking only about ignorance, it's not simply a matter of trying to defeat ignorance of infor by informing the sinner. First of all, the church has always understood that there's a dilemma between informing a sinner that is not prepared to receive the full truth. Because in that case, the sinner will cease to be a mere material sinner and will become a formal sinner, which is graver. And this is the principle, the pastoral principle of good faith, which is applied in uh, church documents and even by some saints. And also, and most importantly, just because the person is informed doesn't mean that the person understands. And here, yes, we must try to find out why the person doesn't understand. Eduardo mentions very well ideological biases, um, traumas even, who knows? Negligent reasoning. Yeah, yes, okay, erroneous reasoning. But just if a person is informed but doesn't understand, this is not full knowledge, as I mentioned before when I quote Aquinas. Again, Rocco Buttiglione, a disciple of John Paul II, says in his book, which unfortunately is only in Italian, Risposti Amichevoli. In uh, Spanish as well. Uh, is okay, yes, but not in English. Uh, the principles are always present in practical reason, the principles, but the habitus applies them into particular cases. And here the capacity to recognize the principles in the concrete situation may be faulty. And that's why I think that's how we should read, in my opinion, paragraph 301 of Amor's Letizia. More is involved here than mere ignorance of the rule. A subject may know full well the rule, yet have difficulty in understanding, not accepting, understanding its inherent values. Yes, we should try to, to, to defeat this, but it's still a mitigating circumstance, which is, again, not the most important one. For me, full consent is the more important one. Okay. You're great at sticking into five minutes, Pedro, I have to say. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, Eduardo. Okay, so I don't want to repeat myself. Uh, I, I've said several times now that mitigating circumstances uh, uh, is not sufficient uh, to provide uh, a justification uh, for two people uh, that are divorced and civilly remarried or cohabiting or whatever the examples 
that one might consider there. Again, I think, uh, and the, 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 the lesser of two evils calculus, uh, if we go back to, for a moment to, uh, yes, I agree that uh, in, you know, that in, in paragraph uh, 304, that the Pope does say it is true that general rules set forth a good which can never be disregarded or neglected, but in their formulation, they cannot provide absolutely for all particular situations. So clearly here, again, uh, I don't see that he's actually uh, acknowledging the distinction between uh, uh, negative precepts and positive precepts, um, because he's admitting that positive precepts uh, that have presumptive validity uh, can, in fact, uh, be insufficient uh, for uh, a specific situation. So it seems to me that there are going to be exceptions there. Um, the other thing is, um, maybe I, I, could, I can focus on that since, since we haven't, and that is, uh, the whole matter of venial sin. So even if we assume that, uh, you know, it becomes a venial sin because it lacks full knowledge and full consent, um, I, I don't hear, I don't hear it from the Pope in Amoris Letitia, but I don't hear it from, uh, from uh, Pedro as well. In paragraph 1862 of the Catechism, it says, one commits venial sin, when in a less serious matter, one does not observe the standard prescribed by the moral law, or when one disobeys the moral law in a grave matter, but without full knowledge or without complete uh, consent. But then it says, and this I don't hear from Pedro, and I don't hear it from, uh, from, the, from Francis. Venial sin, it says, weakens charity. It manifests a disordered affection for created goods. It impedes the soul's progress in the exercise of the virtues and the practice of the moral good. It merits, I don't hear this, it merits temporal punishment. Deliberate and unrepentant venial sin disposes us little by little to commit mortal sin. However, venial sin does not break the covenant with God. We, we can all agree with that. With God's grace, it is humanly reparable. Venial sin does not deprive the sinner of sanctifying grace, friendship with God, charity, and consequently eternal happiness. Um, so it seems to me that, uh, uh, and I've argued this throughout, mitigating the mitigation of cir mitigating circumstances is not sufficient to explain the pastoral logic and the moral reasoning involved in Amoris Letitia that you have uh, the the lesser of two evils calculus. You have the the uh, you know the Pope. Um, I think confusing uh, uh, negative moral precepts with positive moral precepts. Those positive moral precepts, which as a general rule, uh, you know, can't be disregarded. You can't d disregard it. You can't say it doesn't matter. But you can still find an exception there, such that the rule becomes indeterminate. The more specific the act is, the more specific the circumstance is. And then also um, the, the, whole, the whole matter of how to properly interpret 303, what is the most generous response that, that can be given to God? And you come to see with a certain moral security 
that it is what God himself is acting amid, asking amid the concrete circumstances, the concrete complexity of one's limit, while yet not fully the objective. It seems to me here the Pope uh, affirms the gradualness of the law because he's allowing that in a situation, and by the way, not only uh, does the Pope do this, but certainly his interpreters have done this. Uh, for instance, Cardinal Supic, uh, Cardinal Supic, uh, uh, you know, says that uh, you have to consider the circumstances where, and he applies it to homosexuality, whether they can receive, uh, whether they can receive uh, a communion, and he he appeals to paragraph 303 as a way of justifying because he sees that these people, this is the best that they can do given the circumstances. And so there can be a certain moral security, he says, that this is what God himself is asking uh, amid the concrete complexity of one's limits. Now, you can take that. I, I agree. I agree with Pedro that there's a dynamic built into that. The Pope doesn't say, well, that's it. You know, the, the picture is not static. But the fact is, he's, he, uh, his position is such, as I read it, it allows uh, a, a person in that kind of situation to uh, do evil in order, that, uh, in order that good may come. Uh, okay. The good being the full realization of, uh, of the moral law. All right. So we're, we're at the last of the dubia. Um, and here it goes. Eduardo is going to go first. After uh, Amoris Letizia, this is number 303, which has been mentioned a bunch of times. Does one still need to regard as valid the teaching of John Paul, St. John Paul II's encyclical Veritatis Splendor, uh, number 56, based on scripture and tradition, that excludes a creative interpretation of the role of conscience and that emphasizes that conscience can never be authorized to legitimate exceptions to absolute moral norms that prohibit intrinsically evil acts by virtue of their object. So, Eduardo? You know, the fact that the Pope himself thinks that it's necessary to mention that he's not, uh, that he's not uh, suggesting uh, some kind of double status here, or that there are two levels of truth, one at the level of the concrete circumstance and the other at the objective level tells you that he senses that something is awry here, even, even though, of course, he doesn't admit. Um, but I think, I think that, uh, uh, that Francis, uh, or at least that these texts, these crucial texts, uh, 303, 304, and so on, I think they can be read uh, to prioritize in the pastoral logic to prioritize the more concrete existential consideration, to quote the Pope, uh, John Paul II. He says, by la the latter, John Paul says, by taking account of circumstances and the situation could legitimately be the basis of certain exceptions to the general rule. I think that's what Francis does. And thus permit one to do in practice and in good conscience what is qualified as intrinsically evil by the moral law. Now we can we can uh, we can discuss here the whole question of whether mitigating circumstances, you know, uh, uh, render uh, you know being two two people in a in that relationship being sexual whether that's a venial sin. Okay, 
I I don't have any any problem if there are genuine genuine exceptions to that. Although I do think that it doesn't it still doesn't provide a justification for having sex. Uh, a separation or an even opposition is thus established in some cases between the teaching of the precept, which is valid in general, and the norm of the individual conscience, which would in fact make the final decision about what is good and what is evil. On this basis, an attempt is made to legitimize so-called pastoral solutions contrary to the teaching of the magisterium, John Paul writes, and to justify a creative hermeneutic according to which the moral conscience is in no way obliged in every case by a particular negative precept. Now, of course, all of this presupposes that, uh, that we're talking here about negative moral precepts that are uh, always, uh, that are moral absolutes and hence exceptionless and so on. Uh, um, we all agree that Francis um, is not saying uh, that it's permissible, that it's okay to commit adultery. Okay. But I, I, I still think that given his understanding of mitigating circumstances or the understanding that, that Pedro has, uh, has set forth, I still think that it seems to me that there's a confusion between negative and positive moral precepts. There's also, uh, you know, the attempt to argue that having sex in a in a, a, a divorce and civilly remarried uh, situation that that's a venial sin. It seems to me we have to bring out the the impact of venial sin as the catechism does. I don't. I, as I said, I didn't. I didn't hear that. I don't hear that in the Pope. And one of the reasons we don't hear it, I think, is because if you go back to where I started today, is that he thinks that you. Uh, you know, you have all these good, these good elements, and then it seems to me there's a flip in taking those good elements to mean that the relationship as such is good, um, and hence uh, somehow ordered to the good of marriage. Um, it seems to me that that's just not the case. There's no mention of sin in that sense. The mere fact that uh, he, yes, he's talking, Pedro says he's talking about people who want to pursue the good. But how do they want to pursue the good? They want to pursue the good in, by, by, by having sex. Uh, uh, and so in that respect, it's, uh, it, it contradicts the, um, they want to pursue the good by having sex because having sex is a lesser evil than the greater evil of, of uh, you know, not having sex and having impact on the marriage, uh, on the children, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems to me that uh, when all is said and done, um, yes, the Pope is silent, I would say, about uh, moral absolutes, uh, negative moral precepts, uh, he thinks that they're just abstract truths. Um, and so he doesn't talk about, uh, he doesn't really talk about the status of those, of those truths, because he's primarily concerned with the concrete, as Pedro says, he's concerned with the concrete situation of these couples. Uh, but it seems to me that uh, 
if and Pedro acknowledges that that the, the you know you have the point about when someone is unable to understand or fails to acknowledge, uh, you have to push back. And of course, no, I don't. Nobody thinks. I don't think that all you have to do is tell that person who comes into your your pastor and you tell that person, uh, you know, you just tell them, well, you know, you know what you're doing is actually uh, wrong. And that that somehow lifts lifts him from his invincible ignorance, because in many of these situations, it's not about ignorance. It's about uh, it's about misunderstanding. It's about false, as I've said, ideological rationalizations. It's about false reasoning. It's about faulty presuppositions that inform. Uh, 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 and so, all of those things not only pertain to full knowledge, but they also pertain to you know, co you know, consent, the, the act, uh, the activity of the will. All right. Uh, okay, we're going to have closing statements. So, um, uh, uh, I thought that I was going to address Dubia Five. I have you, no, no, you are. That. I'm just saying that we can uh, move okay. to, okay. to your. Yeah. Uh, so, just one point. Um, I agree with Eduardo. Venial sin weakens. Uh, and I think I mentioned in my book, either the Baltimore Catechism or, or the Catechism of Council of Trent or both, that the sin darkens the intellect and weakens the will. No, no, no problem around that. But as Eduardo quoted from the Catechism, venial sin does not deprive the sinner from the grace of God, from communion. So if the sinner is weakened, the more he benefits from receiving the strength from sacramental grace. It's not, as Pope Francis says, uh, being a reward for the just. It is about being a medicine for the weak. Now, regarding the Dubium Five, I don't think that Amoris asks for a creative interpretation of the role of conscience in the way that is condemned by Veritatis Splendor. Because Veritatis Splendor condemns this creative interpretation in the sense that conscience would create exceptions or make an intrinsically evil act all right. Again, my position is that Amoris Letizia does not do that. Amoris tries to deal with the function of conscience and discernment of subjective culpability of objectively evil acts. Now, regarding uh, paragraph 303, Pope Francis says, yet conscience can do more than recognize that a given situation occurs objectively to the overall demands of the gospel. It can also recognize with sincerity and honesty what for now is the most generous response which can be given to God and come to see with a certain moral security that it is what God himself is asking amid the concrete complexity of one's limits while yet not fully the objective ideal. So what is this it that God is asking? Is it the situation that does not correspond objectively to the overall demands of the gospel? Or is it the most generous response that can be given to God? In other words, does God will someone to remain in an objective situation of sin, which is, uh, I think, uh, what uh, some of critics uh, think it is? Or does God will that someone give an answer rather than remain as he is, even if that answer is imperfect? Uh, Eduardo seems to believe that this quote refers to remaining in the objective situation of sin. That's why we're talking about creating exceptions, justifications. 
But how can this be the will of God remaining in the objective situation of sin be the will of God? If some paragraphs earlier in paragraph 291, Francis said any breach of the marriage bond is against the will of God. How can this situation be against the will of God in one paragraph and be the will of God in the other? So this interpretation creates unnecessary internal inconsistencies. So what, when Francis speaks of what God is asking, the situation that corresponds to that does not correspond to the objective demands of the gospel is in the previous sentence. The most generous response is in the same sentence just before Francis says, this is what God himself is asking. And this interpretation is more consistent. In fact, the whole paragraph starts with recognizing the influence of such concrete factors. We can add that individual conscience needs to be better incorporated into the church's praxis in certain situations that do not objectively embody our understanding of marriage. So everything that has to do with conscience being incorporated in these situations has to be read through the influence of concrete factors. And these concrete factors are the mitigating factors that are explained in the previous paragraphs. And finally, I would just like to talk about the law of gradualness because it's something that also has been uh, talked about a lot. And uh, uh, yes, uh, Familiaris Consortio says, yeah, that um, there's, uh, we should avoid the gradualness of the law and not, and not uh, confuse this with law of gradualness. And Francis accepts this. Okay, again, he says that for this discernment to happen, okay, uh, the, we must have humility and discretion, love for the church and the teaching, in a sincere search for God's will and the desire to make a more perfect response to it. Amoris Letizia, paragraph 295 says, human beings know, love, and accomplish moral good by different stages of growth. This is not a gradualness of the law, says Amor's Letizia. And later, on Amor's paragraph 300, given that gradualness is not in the law itself, this discernment can never prescind from the gospel demands of truth and charity as proposed by the church. So I believe that if Francis writes these caveats, we should take them seriously as boundaries that we shouldn't cross if we are to interpret this document accurately. It's not that he senses that something has arrived with it, what he wants. He is clarifying what he wants and saying, I don't want it to be extended farther into the erroneous territory. If Francis says this isn't to be construed as gradualness of the law, then we shouldn't construe it as gradualness of the law. Mm -hmm. And any interpretation that says that there is gradualness of the law should be disregarded whether it's from his critics or from his supporters. Okay. However, the law of gradualness is by definition step by step. If therefore the goal hasn't been reached yet, if the goal was already reached, there would not be a need for gradualness. Okay, um, can I just say one thing? Uh, yeah, I need to say something. Say something okay, look, uh, you you know, Pedro always cites paragraph 291, you know, where it says, where the Pope says, uh, that the church realizes that any breach of the marriage bond is against the will of God. Well, no, I, yes, of course, of course, the Pope says that, but that's in the context, you have to quote the full sentence. She is also conscious of the frailty of many of her children. It seems to me that 
that that's what he that's what needs to be focused on because that's what he's trying to give an account of the frailty of many of her children and the circumstances under which that frailty shows itself. Okay, okay. So Pe Pedro, you're you're going to respond right to that because we're going to go to closing statements. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. Pope Francis's emphasis. I agree that Pope Francis' emphasis is the frailty of the, those people in those situations. I completely agree. That's his emphasis, but still, it takes his time to say that any break of the bond of marriage bond is against the will of God. So yeah. that's mm -hmm. something that we must accept. I also don't accept, uh, if I may, just quickly. I do not just because the look. I said at the beginning of my presentation that uh, you won't find a coherent and systematic presentation of pastoral logic and the moral, the structure of moral reasoning informing that. But when you put all of these things together, it seems to me, yes, I know, I know that Francis says, uh, I don't deny that. He says that this is the, you know, the gradualness, uh, the law of gradualness and not the gradualness of the law. But when you put into the picture that is constructed here that I, that I constructed in terms of the the uh, you know the the lesser of two evils calculus in terms of uh, you know the the idea that applying the law to all situations is going to be reductive he says and so we he's trying to carve out an exception uh, and then it seems to me the way that uh, I don't know of any other way to read 303 uh, if you consider the context, the, the context, uh, the context is such that paragraph opens by referring to a certain state that is objectively at variance with the universal command of the gospel. And it closes, it closes with uh, a reference to uh, the the uh, the situation, as he says, uh, the concrete complexity of one's limits while yet not fully the objective ideal or the objective standard. So in between, in between that, that's where you have the, 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 the reference to the generous response, which can be given to God and come to see whether, whether a certain uh, moral security, that is what God himself is asking him at the concrete complexity of one's limits, etc. It seems to me if you, if you understand this, the calculus, this lesser of two evil calculus, the, 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 the attempt to carve out exceptions and so on, then it doesn't seem uh, uh, foolish uh, regardless. Just because somebody asserts something doesn't mean that you, oh, okay, you asserted that, that's wonderful. No, just because some, the Pope says X, that doesn't mean when you consider the whole uh, the whole framework that he's working with, that that that, that, that X isn't somehow uh, uh, problematic. I, I don't see why the Pope has to justify his the claims that he's making in terms of the scriptures and the tradition. The mere fact that he says X doesn't mean that X is somehow uh, untouchable and, and so on. So I don't see any other way since at the both the beginning and the end of this short paragraph, the text refers to those moments of falling short, how can we not think that what he's referring to as the most generous response, if he meant to say living together as brother and sister, he could have said that because he cited 84 earlier on. Uh, uh, he could have said that, but he doesn't say that. So I, 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 okay, I, so 
I'm trying to figure out where we are on the closing statements here, but uh, which is fine. Uh, Pedro, do you want to? What? Uh, nothing, nothing. Please proceed. Yeah, so why don't you, you make a response to that by way of your, your closing statement, and then Eduardo will have some time. Uh, the, only, the only thing that I would like to say is that paragraph 303 starts with recognizing the influence of such concrete factors. So, And it, it links to the previous paragraphs that talk about mitigating circumstances. Um, I, I, I can now then give my concluding statement. Sure. So yeah, yeah, at the end of this discussion, I would like to highlight that it's not possible to exhaust everything that needs to be said about this topic in an hour or two. Uh, many arguments that I left unsaid are expounded on, and many arguments that I explained here are better fleshed out in my book, The Orthodoxy of Amores Letizia by Whip and Stock. So uh, it's much more detailed than anything that I could say here. So as for this discussion, uh, again, my position, and I hope to have proven it at least uh, uh, in a cogent way, that uh, I think that Amor's Letizia rests on the doctrine of subjective culpability and mitigating factors in a way that is not meant to be read as justifying the objective evil nature of an intrinsically evil act. This cannot be heterodox since all the supposed magisterial authorities that allegedly contradict Amoris also affirm this doctrine, from Aquinas to John Paul II, and even Eduardo uh, says so. So all teach that there are mitigating factors diminishing subjective culpability so that a sinner is not immortal sin, and a sinner who is not immortal sin may receive communion. So not only is Amoris Letizia not contradictory with prior magisterial documents, I believe it is continuous with them. Familiaris Consortio asks for a greater dialogue between pastors and laity. In this way, is open to its progressive development. So it goes on to say that it is useful to recall that the proximate and obligatory teaching of the faith also concerning family matters belongs to the hierarchical magisterium. As for Veritatis Splendor, it's a renewal of moral theology. This phrase of renewal of moral theology appears three times in Veritatis Splendor. And this renewal that John Paul II calls for, again, according to Veritatis, is not merely a legalistic interpretation of the commandments or a set of precepts. It calls for an intense pastoral effort, which resides not so much in doctrinal statements as in constantly looking to the Lord Jesus. This is in Veritatis. The task but the task of authentically interpreting the word of God has been entrusted to the church's living magisterium. This is apparent from the living tradition which comes from the apostles and which progresses in the church under the assistance of the Holy Spirit progresses. Therefore, we can see that Amor Letizia is answering the call for a renewal of moral theology per veritatis splendor and of greater dialogue between pastors and families per familiaris consortio. And John Paul II taught that the authority to undertake these is falls within the magisterium. And the magisterium is then at this moment lies with Pope Francis and with Amoris Letizia. So the tradition of the church is clear. We must give our submission of mind and will to this magisterium. And we should not fear to do so, for Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would guide the church. As John Paul II used to cry, do not be afraid. God is with the church today as in yesterday. 
uh, good afternoon to all who are viewing it. And again, I thank Eduardo and Jim for accepting to participate in this discussion. All right, Eduardo. Well, um, I don't. Uh, I don't think I need to repeat every everything I said. Uh, um, my my emphasis was on. Uh, arguing that mitigating circumstances, the question of subjective responsibility, is not sufficient uh, uh, to understand uh, Pope Francis's pastoral logic and uh, and the attendant uh, logic of moral reasoning. As I said, as I tried to emphasize repeatedly, when you put together the 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 framework in which he engages in past in the pastoral logic that he that he wants the church to engage in, it seems to me you have uh, again this uh, lesser of two evils calculus an attempt to carve out an exception to the moral law, uh, um, uh, an attempt to provide a justification. I don't see how paragraph three or three can be read any other way. Um, Also, uh, as uh, as uh, Pedro uh, acknowledged, you know we have to take more seriously in the pastoral logic the whole matter of uh, of not just vincible ignorance, uh, although that's important. Uh, you know, uh, ideological rationalization. Somebody comes into your office, uh, false reasoning, a false set of presuppositions. I mean. Uh, the, the mere fact that someone is unable to grasp uh, or it has a difficulty to accept a particular moral precept, uh, we need to we need to we need to push back on that, uh, and and that seems to me part of the pastoral uh, part of the pastoral logic. Uh, you can't just uh, 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 accept what someone says uh, or the position that someone takes without actually then. Uh, giving, uh, asking him for his reasons. I don't hear that. I hear uh, uh, Pedro acknowledge it here, but I don't hear that in the book, uh, in his book, and I don't hear it in Pope Francis. I think there's a certain optimism. In fact, the first time I wrote about this encyclical or this exhortation, I said that, uh, which was right after it came out, I said, uh, it's almost as if everybody is invincibly ignorant for the Pope or is or doesn't or, you know, is is not subjectively responsible either because of the, because of knowledge or because of the will. Um, so, you know, I appreciate the conversation uh, with uh, with with Pedro. Uh, I think that uh, it's not enough to, uh, like he did, you know, citing uh, two, 291, because the fact is the emphasis in the in chapter eight is not on breaching the marriage bond as being against the will of God, but on the how do we deal with the frailty of many of her children, uh, and and it's in that context that it seems to me that Francis allows uh, sexual relations uh, as the lesser as the lesser of two evils, the greater evil being, you know, the the, the breakdown of the marriage, uh, how it affects children, and so on and so on. Uh, so in that respect, it seems to me he buys into the gradualness of the law. Uh, the law there being situation and person-specific uh, uh, on the way to, you know, admittedly, on the way to a more fuller realization 
of the law. I don't know how you can have a more fuller realization of the of the moral law without, you know, ceasing to have sexual relations in uh, in an invalid invalid marriage. Okay. Well, yeah. This. Uh, thank you. I want to thank both um, both participants. It's it's rare these days in the Roman Catholic Church for people who disagree to uh, to engage one another. It's 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 really part of the the, the contemporary disease that has affected um, theology. So this is an exception, and we should be happy about it. So uh, I am very grateful for Pedro for suggesting it, Eduardo for giving my name, and um, I think this is this is to the good. Yep. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good afternoon, then. Yes. Closing broadcast now. Okay. Right.